welcome to another episode of the Vikingology podcast. The art and Thank science you. of the Viking age. Yeah. And Thank today you very much. we have I'm excited. Yes, we have a a very uh a, a, I'd say a prestigious guest today. Yeah. Uh one of the one of the better known people that we've had, uh Andrews Winroth. I'll introduce you with a couple of things, but correct me if uh, Google got you wrong in any way. <laughs> uh, but cur currently a tenured professor at Oslo University. Uh, probably best known for this book, The Age the of the Vikings. In the, right. world. Yes. in the Viking world. Yay. Yeah, in the Viking world. <laughs> Look, at that. Look at all these tabs. Um, I would say the, the, right. the general history of the Vikings. Yes. Um, and uh, but uh, your focus uh, prior to diving into the Viking Age, and we'll talk about this, your focus is actually on medieval canon law, which I think yes. is really interesting. And, and how so for me, the I think an interesting part of our conversation today will be how did you go from that into Vikings, where you in a previous podcast, we actually spoke with someone who is a medievalist on on ninth century monasticism. And he told us he spent an entire career avoiding the Vikings because as far <laughs> as he was concerned, they weren't all that significant, right? A small terrorist group that attacked a couple of monasteries out of tens of thousands, you know, not a big deal. So <laughs> I, I'm interested to hear how your journey differed where you started in the, the religious side of things and then moved and then said, hey, you know what? Vikings are worth exploring and worth writing an entire history on. Um, yeah. Two books. Yeah. Two books. Yeah. I also yeah. would like to mention that uh, uh, your better half is Catherine Friedrich's daughter. I think I completely yes. misspelled that. We're, no. we're such you, you, you are like so Catherine Friedrich's daughter. Johanna Friedrich. Yes. Johanna Friedrich. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she goes by Johanna. Yeah, Johanna. Yes. Yeah. Please do correct me if I mispronounce anything. Um, but oh, that uh, who good. wrote that that book, uh, which is also a fantastic book on on women in the Viking Age. So, uh, yes, highly yes, recommend it's a marvelous that one. Book. Yes. Yeah, so you are you are one half of a what I like to call the Viking power couple. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I suppose so. I'm the historian; she's the literary and philological scholar. That's a good combo. That's a good combo. Yeah, it's a very field, good combo. Right? Yeah, yeah, we, we complement each other. I'm sure your your dinner dates are fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sometimes. Sometimes. CJ, didn't, <laughs> CJ, didn't you almost uh, try to work with Anders as a as a doctoral student? Uh, that was, yeah, years ago. I think 2017 when oh. you were still at Yale. Uh, we when had you applied a, a, to the program. Well, so we had a brief email exchange because oh, I was that's, I was shopping. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering because I knew your name. I recognized mm -hmm. your name. Yeah, and the the uh, the challenge I ran into it was just that, that time in my life. And then um, uh, Yale was going to make me go back and do a, a specialized master's first in oh, yeah in history because my my degree is actually in education um right. in the social yeah. social sciences and so they said well that's not good enough we want you to have have a have a degree in history specifically and i thought well that's odd because i i feel like it should work but so they and that was going to cost i forget i forget how much it was going to cost it is like for it was going to be two years and it's going to have to be on site and it was going to be something like oh you know eighty thousand dollars of tuition and i was like you know <laughs> oh, that's too much yeah <laughs> yeah 
yeah i was like it's probably not going to work but um yeah because originally the program i was in that was that was um because i was doing a ba to phd at the university of oregon these guys uh but that started in 2009 when they cut the humanities department by 40 percent because of the great recession Uh and that that included my program and uh actually the the professor who is going to be my um or who was my my university advisor uh was laid off (laughs) so all right um well that's terrible well and we're in oregon so they're like you know well if we're going to cut something medieval like why do we need that in oregon (laughs) Mm, mm, that's very short-sighted yeah you know it's anyway but so that's that was kind of my journey so when i applied to yale and i had my master's was kind of off so like another one i was like okay i don't a little bit rich for my blood i'm going to keep working in the private sector Right. Good. (laughs) Well, today, so, I mean, we have never spoken with someone about this particular topic. And I'm, I'm, I was just telling CJ, I'm like, I'm endlessly interested in conversion. I think it's a really interesting topic, no matter where you're talking about or when. Um, And so, the Viking Age, I mean, as you you well know, I mean, we're talking about roughly maybe three and a half centuries where a lot of change takes place in the Nordic world. And the switch to Christianity is one of them, which is sort of ongoing from pretty early on in a fairly kind of drip, drip, drip sort of pas- uh, fashion. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. yeah so it doesn't really kind of get get rolling pretty well until you get into the what, late 10th century or closer to the uh, turn of the first millennium. Um, but you know, ultimately it does happen and, you know, but I like to tell my students, it's like, you know, we've got a good two thirds of the Viking age where they're not Christian in any big kind of way. And so then it just always, for sure, it begs the question of like, well, what the heck happened there? And why would they, why would they finally succumb to that? And so I kind of wanted to just start out by asking you, this is, so this is something I do with my students when I teach this each time. And um, so I just ask them to engage in a thought experiment from both sides of the equation. So to say, firstly, imagine you are a Nordic person in that period, uh, living before Christianity, and you've got a worldview and a set of beliefs that, um, and practices that have basically been with you since time immemorial, right? You don't remember anything else, maybe in your family or your community or whatever. Um, you know, and then here comes somebody sort of trying to sell this thing to you, you know, so what, what is it that it would take to get you to change your entire worldview? What would it take to get you to, you know, to convince you that this is something you should do? It's worthwhile. And then, of course, the other side of the equation is pretend you're a Christian missionary trying to convert those people how will you get them to change? You know, what are the selling points? How does the negotiation proceed? Um, and then more importantly for me, how is it that you know for sure when you've succeeded 100%? <laughs> so so if, what happens there on both sides of those? That, that Yeah, yeah. No, these are, these are very interesting questions. And that's really what I was curious about exploring when I started to write the, the first book, the, the Conversion Scandinavia book. Uh, and what I sort of concluded is that the the story is not about missionaries and it's not about the people. It's about the chieftains and the kings. Uh, it's about the people who who have a, a more international worldview that knows about Europe. 
And of course, going out on Viking raids means that you learn about Europe. And I think these people, they wanted to become European. Mm. So they, and a, a part of that package was to become Christian and uh, eventually to uh, create kingdoms and create Christian kingdoms, uh, converting people. So they are the key figures. The, the missionaries were invited by the chieftains and the kings that existed. I mean, if you read the stories of, of the medieval stories about missionaries carefully, they always invited, or almost always invited. They, they don't set out spontaneously uh, very much. Um, so the chieftains and the kings, they get things going. They bring in missionaries, and then they have, uh, they, they then control an ideology that works, that they can make work very well for them, that they can, uh, um, you know, they can say to people, here, look, I can give you the religion that the emperor has, that the king, kings in England has, that the king in Kiev has. Uh, this, is, this is like the greatest religion you can have. Um, and also by, by me giving you the, mostly connected to me, and I'm the king. Uh, and that would be good for you. And I think that is, uh, at least that's part of the story of how, how, it, how it worked. So we've, um, you and I communicated via email about this chapter that I have to get your permission for, you know, the chapter that I assigned to my students. And, right. um, you know, it's very much in line with what you just said. I mean, the title of the chapter is The Gift of Christianity. So yes. that, that's what you're saying there is a, that it's a, it's kind of a commodity that you sort of give as a gift. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that is the kind of economy you have in early early medieval uh, Europe, certainly in northern Europe, that uh, you exchange gifts and that produces loyalty, and 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 uh, loyalty and and uh, uh, it 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 produces counter gifts. So you can you if you're if you're wealthy and you have access to stuff that you can give to people, uh, you give it to them, including religion, but also other things like silver and gold and, and so forth. And they give the counter gift back their loyalty, uh, and then you can start building a kingdom. So it's top down conversion then. I think so. I mean, mainly, of course, there was also some some. Uh, uh, bottom-up conversion going on, but I don't think that's the main story. It's not about missionaries showing up in, uh, you know, in the common places of Sweden or Norway or something, and standing there and people listening and getting persuaded. The, I I don't really think that that happened in the early Middle Ages. That's sort of the nineteenth-century story of, of uh, mission and conversion in in. Uh, uh, regions outside Europe, mm. and I think it's it's been very easy for us as modern historians to look on the medieval world from from this kind of nineteenth century perspective. Actually, that is a really interesting, I think, segue into something that I was thinking about related to this. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's, I don't know if you've ever heard of that phrase, sort of, is it the chicken or the egg kind of 
kind of thing, which, which comes first, right? Um, because I'm, I'm trained by John Ott, actually. So I'm trained as a medieval right. historian. And, um, you know, this whole idea of, so I, I mean, the Vikings are my thing, but I also teach medieval Europe too, from like 1300 to 1800. And, you know, it's always interesting for my students to sort of get a handle on like just how powerful and how much influence the Christian church had, the Catholic church had prior to the Protestant Reformation. And, and so you look at it as this sort of behemoth institution in this period of time that lasts for many centuries so that we call the Middle Ages or the medieval period. Uh, at least in the American tradition, I know it's a little bit, the dating is a little bit different in, in Europe, yeah. especially with relationship to where the Viking Age falls and stuff. But but it just sort of begs this question for me of like, does Christianity shape medieval Europe uh, or does medieval Europe shape and create Christianity? You know, it's like, is this an institution that exists within a particular landscape or context um, or was it responsible for actually creating that landscape and context? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's that. I mean, I, th I think that's a great way of of looking at it. I mean, obviously, Christianity already existed, but Christianity also changes a lot during the Middle Ages. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the things that we think that you know that we think if we haven't studied church history or, or whatever, that we think has always applied. Uh, they are inventions of the Middle Ages. Things like, you know, in the Catholic Church, you have to confess your sins yearly. That's That was decided at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. Uh, celibate priests, that's in the 11th century. Uh, I mean, it existed before, it was an ideal, but it was in the 11th century it became obligatory, and so forth. Mm. Now you see, I'm getting into the canon law. Yeah, no, that's okay. My other field. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we get too far in the weeds on that one, there's two things I want to pick <laughs> apart from from what you mentioned there. So this idea that that chieftains were inviting missionaries to come convert, right? And I think that speaks yeah. to something that that might surprise our listeners because in the popular con consciousness, right? And you know, I don't want to call it popular culture, but I think in general we think of Vikings as being antagonistic to Christendom. Yeah, and and having you know, we, and if you look at popular representations of Vikings, say the show Vikings on History Channel, for example, you know, um, they they go into Lindisfarne and they completely disrespect the church, they loot and etc., uh, which speaks to a lack of a fundamental lack of respect for somebody else's culture, right? But then if they're yes. inviting missionaries to come in and um, share their their dogma, if you will. Then that that speaks to a completely different view of of Christians, right? From from the point of view of the of the the so-called Vikings, right? Um, the, I think the first first ones to invite, uh, let's see, Anskar went to Sweden, right? So he went, but he yeah. went through Denmark. Um, so I think that speaks to uh, so that so we have these two ideas, right? Where there's on the one hand you have the raids where they're pillaging and disrespecting, etc., and then on the other they're inviting them in to say, hey, we actually kind of like your ideas and. <laughs> we want to make them our own. Could you speak to that that maybe cognitive dissonance that was happening or happening early on, um, and then how that how that played out, uh, you know, from a cultural lens? Yeah. Well, I mean, they they the Vikings were yes, they were plundering and raiding. They wanted the good stuff, and uh, they didn't show any particular respect for Christianity uh, in a way that. 
Christian armies usually showed some respect for Christianity, but not necessarily uh, always. Uh, then uh, the 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 reason why we think of the of the Vikings as being being kind of anti-Christian is that this is the propaganda that was that uh, the Christian parts of Europe were putting forth uh, at the time. Uh, that uh, this is so terrible. These people are coming, and they they have they have no respect for for our sacred places. Uh, which is true, but then they they give it this spin. They are anti-Christian, and I don't think they are so much anti-Christian. I don't think they care that much. In a way, it's it's uh, it's interesting that what we know of uh, religion uh, in uh, the North uh, before conversion uh, does not suggest that it is an exclusionary religion. You know, it's there is this pantheon, and and it seems to be quite all right to put in to accept uh, another god there. So, uh, I mean, there is a story that's told by a German monk in the tenth century about a dinner party at the at the court of the Danish king Harold Bluetooth. I mean, the guy who invent no, he didn't invent Bluetooth, but. Who, who gave the name to, to Bluetooth technology, which I'm using right now, actually. Uh, the story is that uh, the, the, the other magnets of Denmark are there, but there's also a priest there by the name of Popo. Uh, and in this, at the dinner, there's a discussion about which God is strongest. Uh, and Popo, of course, makes the argument that it's, it's uh, Christ who's strongest. Uh, and and then you know he he goes on to prove that by by uh, according to this monk he tells a ridiculous story of of you know carrying some hot iron and all that. Uh, but the point is is really that they are discussing which god is best. They accept that Christ is a god, just like the 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 Norse gods and so forth. But they haven't yet accepted uh, him ex in an ex exclusive way. So I think that is the general attitude that that uh, you know gods are fine. Uh, we don't respect necessarily their their uh, sanctuaries, uh, and that goes for both Christian the Christian god and the the pagan gods. Unless they became convinced that there would be some horrible punishment for them afterwards. I would think that but, would be uh, a, good, a good end for the, uh, you know, if you were there as a missionary or like Papo was maybe trying to do that uh, once you would get them to accept that Christ was a God or the Christian God, yes. the God no differently, then it's like, whoop, all right, the door is slightly open. Now all we have yeah. to do is further convince them that it's the strongest God, the best God ever, right? Yes. And, and you, you really don't need all those other gods. Yeah. And then, then it's very practical to have this argument. Look, Charlemagne, I mean, is there a stronger man in the world? He's Christian. The Emperor of Byzantium, he, 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 he is probably stronger than Charlemagne, and he's Christian. So, obviously, he's the stronger God. I'm, I'm quoting what I imagine to be the missionary's argument. This is not my argument. <laughs> uh, and, and just to, to play on that idea of of you know the the early christian institutions were sometimes respected by by christians as well but that sometimes not right like they were also yeah. pillaged and through the middle ages right this idea that that 
churches, monasteries, you know, religious institutions are somehow special and should be protected and respected is really more of a, again, a modern invention, right? Like by the time we get yes. to the 19th century, 20th century, we have these very well-established rules where like, oh yeah, like churches are off, off limits, yeah. right? But in the ninth century, that wasn't so either with the Vikings, you know, the Vikings weren't the only ones raiding. Uh, you had in Western France, you had Moors that were coming in and, and raiding. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and then you had other smaller Christian groups that were moving around. And, you know, so it's, it's like, it's, it's not a, it wasn't a homogenous landscape to begin with. Uh, and to your point, that propaganda, right, saying that the Vikings just got a bad rap from the propaganda. Although I, I make the argument that uh, it was on purpose. They wanted it. They wanted that reputation because then <laughs> after a while they show up, they're like, just pay us money and we'll leave. Right. It's it became yeah. a mafia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's part no, of the, marketing. <laughs> it's part of the terrorist tactics. Right. You have to. Yeah. Get yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. No, I think that's absolutely right. That's that's what they wanted. There are articles that I have my students read about, um, like Sarah Foote wrote back in the 90s, and I think, and then Guy Halsall followed up a bit with, uh, I think they were even published in the same journal in medieval history, but um, but this whole idea about this, the, the raids on Christians, and, and, and you know, my students are like, the Christians are attacking other Christians? Why would they be doing that, you know, kind of thing, and then... Um, and, but, but then, I mean, in Halsall's in particular, like, I love it because the title of the article is like playing by whose rules, question mark, you know, and it, it highlights yeah. these, these cultural differences, right? And so, you know, the, the Vikings are interested in the portable wealth and, and stuff. And they, it, so it isn't really an attack on Christianity, but from a Christian standpoint, um, you know, it's it's maybe God's retribution for sin uh, that this is being brought yes. to you. So they're somehow responsible for the, their own plight in this. And it's a problem. And the Vikings are heathen. So they're the ultimate other and they're uncontrollable and unpredictable. And so therefore, it's just like the worst thing ever um, for them. And so it just, you know, boils down to this um, this cultural difference, but I mean, there have been scholars though that have made the argument, right, that that it, that it was an attack on Christianity. That you know, maybe early on, Charlemagne's trying to force it on them or something like that. So they're attacking these monasteries as a sort of you know, trying to to, yeah. to get back you know in the face of that, right? Yeah, I, I I don't buy that at all. I mean, that's that's such a modern idea that you have a kind of clash of civilizations. But that's not how it worked in the Middle Ages. Right. Yeah. Everything is much more small scale, and uh, mm -hmm. people think in in you know it's it's really about you you can attack the art group yeah. uh, without without any any qualms at all. Well, Christianity is one of those groups, right? That's almost <laughs> hugely based on you know. There's the us and there's the them, right? I mean, yes. it's all about who's the out group, who's the infidel, who's the, you know, and it wouldn't have been just Vikings, right? I mean, the Crusades happened during the Viking Age, at least the first one. Yes, least. yeah. And, that, and that's about ultimate others somewhere else that need to be sort of fought against in the name of yes. God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Yeah. It is kind of interesting that, that uh, the Crusades, you know, we think of the Crusades as this you know, Western Europe was a very well-developed society with, you know, that's a very modern lens, right? And and then yeah. to think that like when the first one was ca called for, the Vi the Viking Age was still in full swing. <laughs> and we think of them as very different time periods, but there's a little bit of overlap. It's it's kind of fun to think that like, oh, you know, these things were close. Like it's, it, it's muddier than, than, you know, how 
because it, it, the way that I learned in school, at least, uh, and I went to school in France, and then also here, it's so sanitized, you know, they cut it up into little pieces and then organize it, right? But it's actually much more fluid than, than how it's taught generally. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, and ultimately, right. we know too, like, while you're in Norway there, I mean, was it King Sigurd uh, who ended up actually going on crusade? So yes. the whole narrative like changes from these guys who need to be tamed and Christianized. And then you actually have Vikings going on crusade, you know, so taking yeah. mantle in the name of the Christian God. So that's, oh, that's, yeah. that's a complete about face. In fact, I think yeah. that's something you've written about, Anders, is the, the, the idea, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the idea that it's um, the surprising fact that after the crusade was called, the first kingdom to jump in was Denmark. <laughs> was it? I, I don't think it was, think I was it, that, but it wasn't. Yeah, okay, I I'm, I, <laughs> I, I, I could have sworn it was. I was trying to remember, but yeah, it's like one of those surprising things where where we have this Viking age, and then we have the Crusade, and then one of the first Crusader states was was Denmark, which it, they just yes, jumped right it's in. Like, it hey, was. I mean, it. It, it's it's one of the the earliest chronicles of the, of the of the Crusades. Is it's it's called uh, in I'm trying to translate now from the Latin, the the deeds the deeds of God performed by the Danes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But we must also remember that there were the Northern Crusades. And uh, the Scandinavians really threw themselves into that. Uh, the crusade against the the pagan people on the east eastern side of the Baltic Sea, Finland, the Baltic states, and and, and so on. Uh, the Norwegian King Sigurd was really I mean, one of a few outliers who, who went to the real big crusade in, in the Holy Land. Yeah, It's actually... convenient that they went east. They're like, let's go on crusade. And then everyone was like, yeah, go yeah. to the Holy Land. They're like, no, we're going to go secure trade routes in the east. <laughs> yeah. No, of course. That's what it is about, partially. <laughs> well, so, okay. So we're talking like Norway, Denmark, what have you. Like, that does beg the question. I mean, does this process play out roughly the same across Scandinavia or is it different in different pockets? The the, the Viking the Age, you mean? Or yeah, or like the, 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 the Nordic people becoming Christian over time. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it plays out in the same way. It's somewhat different timescales, and that has to do with distances. That, uh, you know, everything comes to Denmark first, and then Norway, and last Sweden. Uh, Iceland. Uh, yes, Iceland. Uh, Iceland is always special. I love Iceland. I spend a lot of time there every year. So don't diss on Iceland. Right. No, no, no. I, I wouldn't dare choose. <laughs> I, I I go there quite a lot too. They, they did it different. There. They did it differently though, didn't they? The Christianization process. Can you explain a little bit about that for our audience? All right. The the Icelandic Christianization process. There is a story from the early 12th century that in uh, in quite exactly the year 1000, or possibly 999, uh, there, there, some people in Iceland had become Christian, and this was, was threatening to tear society apart. Uh, so one had a meeting of the, of the Althing, uh, you know, the, this sort of meeting that they had every summer uh, to discuss what to do. And then... Uh, uh, in the end, they decided to let let us all become Christian. Uh, everybody has to be baptized, 
uh, we can still do some naughty, uh, naughty pagan things if we don't talk too widely about it. But this is the story. It's a wonderful story. And uh, it's obviously a story that is, the purpose of it is to say that, look, we Christianize ourselves. We are independent. We are, we are the independent Icelanders. We don't need either, either a lot of missionaries to come, or particularly we don't need any kings, and certainly not the king of Norway, to come and tell us to become Christian. Uh, this was a big political issue in Iceland at the time, that the king of Norway was having his sight uh, set on Iceland, and eventually, uh, in the in the 13th century, indeed, Iceland became a part of the of the Norwegian realm. Took him a while, but yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, I think this is it's a wonderful story, but it is a story. Oh come on! Uh, I want yeah, I want it to be. Yeah, true. one does want it to be true. I mean, I, I I think one can pick it apart and pick out the the parts of it that are that seem to be true. You know, for instance, that that you know it gives this interesting image that there are some people become Christian, yeah. uh, but not everybody necessarily. Um. And uh, there are some stories. There were some missionaries there, uh, who, who this, yeah, uh, not very many though. Yeah, I remember the first time I read Christie Saga, and uh, yes. you know, and historians would talk about like, oh, and Iceland was different, and then it was like this democratic process. You know, they like all voted yes. to be Christian or whatever. Uh, and so it went down pretty smoothly over there. And then when I read it, I was like, well, that's an interesting spin on it because, you know, it, it, it was very clear, at least to me in my reading of it, that they were having problems. And even though that there was a smaller contingent of people who had become Christian, uh, like you just said, um, that 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 they were they were trying to get other people to, you know, join the Christian club. And there was some you know, contention there. And, um, you know, so the, the guy who gets charged with the law speaker who gets charged with making the decision and basically is doing it not because they're pro-Christian, but it's like he realized it, that if they didn't pick one or the other, they were going to tear the place apart. Right. Um, and so it's like we have to live by one religion. We have to live by one law or else this whole thing we've got here is just going to devolve into, you know, feud and problems and stuff. So. Um, you know, it wasn't completely without conflict that that it appeared to happen, at least um, to me. But I do like there's there's a great one um, as part of that saga where uh, while the, the guy who's the law speaker is in his booth, you know, sort of ruminating yes. on this decision for 24 hours or whatever it is, um, that the 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 pagan contingent says, well, we're going to we're going to pick a couple of people from each quarter of the country and we're going to sacrifice them to the gods <laughs> so that so that they will let, you know, you know, our, our our old traditions, our old ways prevail. And then the Christian contingent's like, well, we're going to do that, too. But we're gonna we're gonna sacrifice the most virtuous of people. You you guys all sacrifice just crummy people and just sort of push them over cliffs and stuff like that. Well, we're <laughs> gonna sacrifice the virtuous people and call it a victory offering to our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's like um, and my students are like, what? The Christians sacrifice people too in order to make this happen? 
And it's like, I mean, the story is great. And it starts, you know, with a guy who's like Christian, who's basically slandering Freya in front of everybody. So that gets everybody's ire up, you know, and, and, yeah. uh, um, but I, yeah, but like what you're talking about too, I think is interesting as, as far as the, the drip, drip, drip of like, once the door is open and the, the allowance of the traditional practices, which are an, an odd assortment from, you know, infanticide, an exposure of infants to eating horse meat and yes. you know, allowing people to still sacrifice to the pagan gods as long as, like you said, as long as they do it in private, it's kind of like, wow, those are the three things that were the most important to them to hang on to. Um, yeah. But you let them do that and do it for a while. Do we have any sense how long that transition period lasted before they finally out and out banned all that stuff? Well, uh, the the story says itself that it it didn't last very long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, this is this is uh, there is a very long transition period for for conversion, and and uh, uh, I think what's interesting in those things is the thing that that you can sacrifice to the pagan gods as long as you do it in private. In other words, you cannot build a community around the sacrifice. Right. In the way that people were building communities around uh, Christian services, or the sacrifice of the Eucharist, um, and and uh, uh, building communities uh, at baptisms uh, and and all other kinds of rituals, there they were allowed to be public. But if you if you are not allowed to do uh, pagan. Uh, pagan sacrifices in public that should tell us something about that this is actually politics you don't want a, a focal point for the community to focus on and come together around i mean that does i mean it's interesting because it really hits at the heart of um what we know about medieval society as being much more sort of family and kin and uh, community based um yes so if you can't i mean in, in christianity is um it's it's a it's a tool for social communication and i mean the whole thing relies on community right and so yes, it, yes. yeah if you disallow people to do this uh, the old ways as a part of a community that's the way you just sort of start pulling it all apart then yeah no exactly and uh, i mean to stay with iceland if you think of of these um, uh, icelandic sagas that talk about when there is conflict you know, Njal saga or Ravnikel saga and so forth, uh, then it's, uh, you know, they, they are having court procedures at the Althing. Uh, but before they get to the Althing, they are riding around trying to drum up as much support for their point of view as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I mean, that is that is certainly about about creating a community that will stand behind you at the Althing. And uh, in the sagas, those the people who get most followers are the ones who wins. Yeah. Who, who, who wins the cases. I mean, it's it's funny in Njal's saga, which is a marvelous saga. And uh, when I first read it, I read it because I'm interested in legal history. Uh, you know, it's very exciting in the beginning and uh, and uh, all those wonderful uh, uh, wonderful small small images that they, they portray and so forth and then and then Njal gets murdered 
And then you have this guy who's taking up the prosecution is spending like the next 200 pages riding around to farms saying, will you be on my side? And I should say this, but probably, but, but that's a little boring. <laughs> and, then I, and then I came to this fjord and I, I talked to so-and-so, or he talked to so-and-so, and he said, yes, I will support you. And then we then we then we drank beer and and had dinner. And then I went to the next fjord, and this guy said, "No, I'm not going to support you." And I didn't like that, so I didn't stay for dinner. <laughs> oh, you're the, not. Uh, <laughs> you're not alone right. thinking that about Njal Saga. Even the Icelanders yeah. make fun of it. <laughs> yeah, but the but I mean the rest of it is just amazing. I think. Yeah. Well. So uh, uh, there are all these famous proverbs that come from it. Oh, how beautiful it is! The, the, when Gunnar is, is, you know, he knows he's going to be killed if he if he doesn't leave Iceland, and he sets out on his horse, and then he looks back at his farm and he says, "Oh, how, how beautiful it is!" Anyway, I can't leave, yeah. and he goes home and gets killed. Oh, nice. Sorry, now I almost got in the state of telling <laughs> stories from the old saga. <laughs> uh, so go back to um, yeah. So go back to uh, canon law, which is where where your journey started. Um, yes, you know, and then moving into so going back to this idea that we had somebody on the show who ignored the Vikings while studying medieval monasticism and having the ability to do so, which I found illuminating because it it spoke to this idea that perhaps, you know, to your point, these were small, disparate groups of people, right? Yes. Um, and it wasn't this giant clash of civilizations. They were just small, little isolated, you know, incident, you know, as far as, as far as the general impact, right? We we're talking about tens of thousands of religious institutions in just France, for example. Uh, and so uh, yes. we had one, uh, Matthew Ponesi, who said, you know, he spent his entire career ignoring the Vikings because it, in general, they didn't have much of an impact, right? Um, but but your journey took a so you start with canon, uh, uh, canon law, and then and then but then you know sunk sank your teeth into into the Vikings. Uh, could you speak to how you know why you were attracted to the Vikings when others perhaps you know are are more uh, reticent to to get into it? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing that is maybe not that easy to, to answer. Uh, I actually used to think a little like that as well, that, you know, the Vikings are not that important. Uh, but then uh, I, uh, you know, I became a professor and I, I started to teach at Yale University. And you have to come up with classes. And uh, one of my colleagues suggested, or several of my colleagues, why don't you teach Vikings? Since I'm Swedish, so uh, I was supposed to know something about Vikings, which of course I studied in school and it, I went to college in Stockholm and, and, and so. And uh, well, okay, I, I, I got some books and started to read read up on it in a better way. And, and uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. But then when I started to teach it, I thought it was it was wonderful to teach. Uh, you really got a response from the students. So it kind of became part of my bread and butter of, of the teaching for many years. And uh, then I, uh, uh, I was also pursuing this... Um, uh, 
I mean, canon law is a part of church history. I'm not I'm not a church historian, but I studied it. My doctoral advisor is a church historian. And uh, uh, I I was thinking about and, and I was working on contacts between the Pope and Scandinavia. Uh, not really during the Viking Age. It didn't really start at that point. But but uh, I, I was working on that, and that was what led to this book about the conversion of Scandinavia, where I thought I, I could I had something to 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 say, and as I was uh, uh, as I was uh, uh, trying to find a publisher for that book, uh, one editor. Uh, suggested, why don't you write a general book about the Vikings? Because there really isn't one in English. Uh, and of course, I, I re immediately realized that's actually true because I, I hadn't found a book. I've been using different textbooks for my my different courses that I had I've been teaching uh, different years, and I thought, well, I I can I can write that I can you know, write a book sort of on the basis of my lectures in, in Viking history, or, you know, not just on that, but uh, taking it in the various directions I wanted to. Uh, so that's why I sort of got into Vikings. And then I, I came to realize that, yes, um, I... Uh, I talk about the Vikings as being relatively small, small bands that are doing, you know, things that were being done anyway in Europe at the time. Uh, and that is true, but it's true mainly for the early period. Once you get into the 11th century, uh, the Vikings, if you should still call them that, I mean, they conquer England. Uh, and th there are four uh, kings of England or Danes in three generations, um, and and uh, and that's important. Uh, it's important also because it did have an impact on Europe. Also, otherwise, that that uh, what what the Europeans found when the Vikings attacked was that they were not prepared for that kind of warfare. Uh, Charlemagne had very powerful armies, but they were slow and lumbering. And the Vikings showed up quickly, uh, agilely, plundering. And by the time the army was even halfway to where the Vikings were, they were long gone. Mm. The Charlemagne didn't have a navy, but uh, the, the, his successors had to get a navy. England, the English kingdoms didn't have navies, and I mean that's one of the things that Alfred the Great is great for. Uh, he he created the the Royal Navy, I guess, uh, as a response to the Vikings. And then finally, it's it's uh, the the Vikings had a very great impact on Scandinavian history, which was a kind of revelation for me when I when I discovered this since I, I thought I knew Scandinavian history. And I, I don't think I had really uh, understood quite how, how important this period was for the, for the creation of, of the structures that, that uh, you know, I, we think of as natural today, like the, the three Scandinavian kingdoms of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. 
those all have dynastic ties back to the Viking age, don't they? Like genetic ties even, really? Don't they? Some of them? Well, yeah, they the, pretend. I was just in Denmark and they certainly like to pretend that that royal family is like, you know, all the way back to King Gorm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that, that, that they do. Well, the Swedish royal family has very little Swedish cheats in, in, in their gene pool. Since, you know, uh, after Sweden lost Finland to Russia, uh, and the king was was uh, didn't have any children. Uh, they selected one of Napoleon's field marshals as king, and uh, it's his family is still on the throne. Wow, that's fine. Well, I mean, I didn't know that. Just, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. It, it seems interesting that they. I when I first started doing the Viking thing, it was probably roughly well, maybe just a little bit before you did, about twelve years ago or something, and. Um, they started to become a big deal here in the States with the Vikings TV show and, and all of that. And um, I mean, they were a big deal probably before that, but anyway, it was really like kind of catching on fire in a big way. And so I was like, okay, I, you know, this is interesting. And actually my great grandfather is from Sweden. It's like, all right, I have some, you know, of that heritage or whatever. I'll look into this, you know, kind of like you, it's sort of like medieval history. It was focused on a, something slightly different. And, you know, actually my uh, graduate work was in uh, monasteries um and uh, monastic life um the monastery of course that was destroyed by the vikings thank you very much um uh, <laughs> which one yeah uh barking abbey which was about it was in, right. in essex in the in the east of uh england yeah not a good um, place to be in the viking age no no um <laughs> but i was like oh the vikings are so interesting and unique and different and you know and then as i'm reading it it's like you know i don't know they sound like a lot of other medieval european people to me you know it's like they're living in a context where things are you know how different could they possibly be and then when you, you know you're talking about how they have a lot of influence in in shaping scandinavia and everything and um, but it seems sort of counterintuitive to me because over the course of the Viking Age, they actually kind of assimilate, right? And in becoming Christian, yes. becoming more, you know, building, doing state building, like you're saying, that it is more akin to what's going on in the rest of Europe. So it seems to me they kind of blend in and sort of fade away. And yet, how can they be looked at as, you know, these sort of interesting, unique people who left a mark? Um, you know, okay, you talked about the monarchies there, but are there other ways that they have left a mark in that world? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, the, the, I, I do think the creation of the, of the, of the three kingdoms is, is really a, a, a huge uh, heritage of, of the Viking Age. Um, I mean, what else? It's, it's uh, the, the of course, it's hard to say that that they created society as we know it, because uh, as a historian, we know it changes all the time. It develops all all the time. But I mean, there there are a fair number of of cities, for instance, in Scandinavia that go back to the Viking Age, mm-hmm. actually to the end of the Viking Age. It seems that a lot of cities moved around the year thousand. Uh, a lot of cities were founded in the in the year thousand when the uh, there were other other towns, I should probably call them, before that, uh, and that has to do with. Uh, I mean, that also has to do with the conversion because it's it's uh, it's where you you get the bishops. Those become the important cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 
So, so we we have that, yes. But that was the way it was in the rest of Europe, right? I mean, you know, we were talking about our yeah. mutual friend John Ott. I mean, he's like the bishop guy. Like he talked yeah. you know, about, <laughs> yes. about how powerful those those Christian bishops were um, yes. in those in those various territories. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's actually the medieval definition of what a city is. A city is not a city unless it has a bishop. Right. And if it doesn't have a bishop, it's just a town. Has to have the cathedral, right? Yeah. Ex cathedral. Yes. So, okay, were the Swedish Rus the founders of Russia? Oh wow! Yes. Well, <laughs> that 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 uh, that's a very difficult question. Uh, I, the way I like to look at that, I'm actually working on on this now more from a Ukrainian point of view because of course Kiev is in Ukraine, it's the capital of Ukraine. Uh, and uh, uh, what I what I like to say is that you know how the word Viking didn't start to mean Viking until the 19th century. Before that, it just means pirate. Uh, and it, there's no connotation to ethnicity or, or even time period. I mean, in, in the Icelandic language, it, it was used until, certainly in the, in the 17th century, it was used about others than, than what we call a Vikings. So to be a Viking is, is a job description more than an ethnicity. And I think the same applies to Rus. To be Rus is a job description. You belong to a group of people who trade on the rivers of Eastern Europe or, on, or, and along the rivers of Eastern Europe. Uh, it's not really an ethnic label. I think the Rus, at least early on, like say in the 9th century, in the, in the 10th century, and into the 11th century, were very dominated by Scandinavians. Uh, we see that from the from the names they they uh, they carried, many of which are Scandinavian names, but I don't think they were only Scandinavians. Uh, it certainly were the Rus who who began uh, the created states, or if you want to call them kingdoms. As a colleague of mine, I made a very strong argument that they are king kingdoms, not principalities, as we usually call them. Mm -hmm. uh, the the I mean the Rus the Rus created Kiev as a, as a, as a political center, and of course that's from which uh, the the Eastern European uh, states and uh, grew Ukraine Russia uh, Belarus to some degree as well. But it, so is it due to then Scandinavian assimilation over time that they eventually become sort of less Scandinavian and more Slavic? Yeah, I mean they 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 seem to become assimilated very quickly, except for the names. Uh, there, there's, I mean this this is something that has something I'm still not. I still do not understand really about the Vikings that we know they settled in several places in, in Europe. And I mean, the famous example is the Danelaw in, in Eastern England, where, where uh, you know, they, they, there were so many Scandinavians settling there that they, they had an enormous impact on the English language, where, you know, we, we use many words every day when we speak English that are in fact Scandinavian words. 
you had this Viking settling in Normandy, and there's almost no impact. There are a few place names uh, that look like they, they could be Scandinavian, and probably are Scandinavian, as compared to hundreds, if not thousands, in the Dane And I, I think one could probably compare Normandy to the Rus area in the east, because you have that influence on, on language and, and place names. It seems to me that there is a small group of, of uh, people uh, among the Rus uh, who are among the leaders of the Rus who hold on to, to the Scandinavian heritage. But it's not, it's not, uh, it's not bigger than that. And that is why why they become assimilated in the same way as as the Normans become assimilated. I mean, I, I sometimes say that I don't think uh, William the Conqueror he didn't know a word of Scandinavian, yeah, uh, or maybe two. The French word for lobster is Scandinavian, but I think that's the only French word I know. Omar <laughs> from Humber in Swedish. That's CJ's wheelhouse. <laughs> 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 but that's like the only oh. example I know. While, while in English, if you see my book, you know that there is even a paragraph that my dear colleague Roberta Frank wrote uh, that is is consisting entirely of, of Scandinavian known words in English yeah. from the Viking Age. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that in any other language. Yeah. yeah. yeah Not in French or no Ukrainian. Or... I, uh, I wrote a blog years ago saying, uh, you know, are the Vikings and English teachers worst nightmare? Because we break all of our own rules because we're essentially an amalgamation of five different languages just all yes. smushed together. And Eng yeah. so it makes English a, quite a unique language, but I think that also is what has uh, made it such a versatile language. Like if you think about the tech sector, we can just invent words because yes. we don't have to follow our own rules. Whereas, you know, I'm half French, I speak French and and they don't come up with new tech words. <laughs> you know, they, no. it's, it's a much bigger struggle, right? It's and so they have to take the loan words from from English, you know, for for all the stuff. And so yeah, I think there's a it, it gives English a malleability that other languages uh, don't have, precisely because the Vikings came in and really like you know did a Tasmania devil on it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah uh, it's uh. Go ahead, CJ. I, I just I just wanted to echo so I, I find it interesting that so you 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 essentially fell into the Vikings, right? Uh while you were teaching yes. at Yale. They're like, oh teach that. And then once you started opening that book a little bit and realizing like, hey, this is this is a really fascinating topic. I feel like that's a yeah. that's something I've heard from from quite a few people. It's that you're studying one thing and then this came up and then you just started tugging at the thread a little bit and then the ball of yarn unraveled, right? Uh, and uh, I think that's that's interesting. Versus, you know, our our friend Matthew Panessi, who who did not do that. He yes, looked at the he looked at the thread and said, "No, thank you." Um, yeah, for for me, yeah, yeah. my journey is it started in uh, so my my French family are from an island off the coast of France called Normoutier, very famous oh, in Viking oh, history. Wow. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and and so we're we're locals there. And and so when I was growing up, I'd spend my summers in France, and everybody would say, "Yeah, the Vikings were here." And I, I, I was curious about it, and but I couldn't find anyone who actually knew anything, right? They, right? Like they'd be like, "Oh, the Vikings are here." I'm like, "Okay, well, what makes you say that? What is the evidence? Where is that? Oh, we don't know. It's just our family, <laughs> maybe Vikings." I, I, 
how can you, you know, so I, so then uh, when I went to, to university, uh, the University of Oregon, and I, I actually started my, that was my freshman year. I started on um, uh, East, so it was Ancient Russia was the course name. And it All was right. three classes that started in the fall and ended in the spring uh, mm. that, that started with the invitation of the roots of, of Rurik, Siniod, yeah. uh, and Truvor, the three brothers who allegedly mm. were invited to rule over the, you know, so starting with the Russian primary chronicle. And that's yes. where I, I started getting my feet wet with the subject where, you know, I knew I wanted to, that's where I wanted to steer the ship was get into the Vikings and figure out, well, what really happened in Nomuti? But, but, you know, at the University of Oregon, they didn't have that, but they had ancient Russia. And that's where I started. And that's where I, I kind of oh, got right. my yeah, yeah. Um, basic training, if you will, on that. And uh, oh, so the, the Eastern, the whole Eastern expansion is f intrinsically fascinating to me. I just think it's because, so, you know, first of all, that whole idea of like, there's a mystery behind the Vikings because the, the sources are disparate and the evidence is light. So we can't, we can't say anything for sure. It's maybe this happened, probably maybe could have, you know, um, and, and in the East, that's particularly so because we had the, the sources are even more disparate and the mythology around yeah. it actually took on a whole different, um, a whole different character. Right. And even to like today when the war, the, the war in Ukraine started, and I started seeing articles about like, you know, the, you know, Viking this and Viking that I'm like, wait, hold on. Like you're missing a big chunk here. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I have a student well, actually at Portland state university last quarter in the fall, um, who was working for an NGO and he was in Ukraine and, um, right. I, in, in like very close to where some fighting was happening. And at one point we did a Zoom because, you know, he was worried about, you know, missing assignments and this and that. You know, so like, I'm like Zooming with this poor student who's like literally his phone and he's using his phone as a hotspot and it's all dark around him because they don't have electricity. They don't have the internet. Yeah. He's very close to where fighting's happening. And this poor soul is like worried about missing assignments in my class. And I'm like, you know, right. dude, we're just, you know, this is a Viking class in Portland, Oregon. It's like, don't worry about it, you know, kind of thing. But he was, he was talking about each of my students writes, um, they pick a topic and they write a chapter essay so that we could create, you know, we oh. collaborate as a class and we create an edited volume on the Vikings. And, oh, um, great. and and so he wanted to do something about the Rus and about because of where he was. Right. And yeah. um, and and so he talked about having um, some conversations with some Ukrainian historians and. And he's like, he kept running into these roadblocks about the interpretation of the Russian primary chronicle. And, yes. and, and, you know, okay, what, what parts of it are propaganda? What parts of it, you know, do Ukrainians actually accept as their history versus not and all of that. And he was just getting like tied up in knots about it because of these sort of conflicting things that he was hearing um, from historians. And so rather than what he kind of initially had hoped to do, we, we sort of turned it, his essay into basically source criticism, um, you know, right. yeah. about the difficulties with the Russian primary chronicle. And um, so it turned out to be, it was one of the best essays in that uh, that volume, but it was just so interesting that he's just right there, you know, in, in the thick of all of this. And then also just sort of the political conflict between Russia and Ukraine and like who's who's the true founder of this place and and, and what is our history um, there because it still exists as you even know right even in the academic community with sort of the normanist and anti-normanist thing and all and all of that so um, yeah you know. well, that sounds fascinating yeah I mean the Russian the Russian 
primary chronicle is is a fascinating text and it's very very hard to interpret i must say there's an interesting story, though, with Vladimir the Great in there. I mean, getting you know, like sort of to our, our issue of Christianity here. And you yeah. know what it is. I can't remember if you put it. You probably have it in your book anyway. But that 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 section in there where he's pondering, like, which religion he's supposed to convert to or want. Yes. To, right. Can you, can and, you explain? And then, and then uh, he 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 sends people to to all the four religions that might be possible. Uh, I mean, sort of. It's funny. It's two stories. One of them is sense people. So, so there is a guy going to, to the Catholics, the Western Christians, uh, I guess in Germany or Hungary or or some such place, uh, and uh, the they they are so severe, boring. So that's not good. And uh, there are there's another one who goes to the Muslims in probably in the Bulgars uh, on the on the Volga. Uh, and they find out that they can't drink alcohol, so that's no good. And then there, there is another guy who goes to the Khazars on the lower Volga, uh, who are who are Jews, uh, or at least their it seems their leaders were were Jewish, uh, converted to Judaism, and and. Uh, I forget what was wrong with that, but it wasn't good anyway. And then they, there's a guy going to Constantinople and goes into a beautiful church. I, mean, I think I always imagine it, Hagia Sophia, or that doesn't say. And it's so beautiful. It's marvelous art everywhere. And there, there's, it smells so sweetly from the incense and all that. So that's where we are going to go. Uh, that's the religion we are, we are going to stay with, uh, Eastern Christianity, Orthodoxy. I think that it almost the sounds Jew like a bad joke. The, yeah, I think the Jewish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the part with the Jews, if I remember correctly, was something to do with maybe the the story of the exile or something. And he's like, so then God must be angry with those people, so we don't want to be part of that, All right? You know, yeah, kind of thing. But I mean, I always tell my students, like, I show them this passage, and then it's like, all right, if you if you. <laughs> If you if you can't see this as just Viking opportunism, like just yeah. writ large, the guy's just like, yeah, not that religion. No, we like to eat pork and drink alcohol, so forget those guys, you know. And then it's like, yes. all right, yeah. path of least resistance in the church is pretty. Let's go with this one. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's good. It's, uh, I mean, I think it's it's a wonderful illustration of uh, how wonderful our sources are. Uh, including the primary chronicle, because they're really good at telling stories. Uh, but the problem with stories is that they are so seductive that you know we want to think it's true. Right. And I mean, I don't think this happened. This is this is a story that shows up in other places around around the world as well. Uh, but it's it's very interesting that when it was when it was composed. Uh, this was the story that they wanted to tell about themselves. Yeah. That this was a they really looked into it, uh, and we have very good reasons to be orthodox. So, okay, I want to ask them that question too, as far as kind of the structural part of the institution of the church. I mean, we know that that kind of administrative bureaucracy was attractive to kings who were on the make, who yeah. you know could model their courts and their governments or whatever on on the structure of the church. Um, but 
you know, so we're talking about people who are doing it, I guess, yeah, top down, and they're doing it for these reasons of maybe perceived power and status and all of that. But in the long term, when you're talking about, you know, after a couple of centuries or something, and you're getting the rest of the population all the way down to to buy into this and to adopt um, Christianity, um, that there are, you know, these arguments about, well, the pagan system prior to that was just, you know, it's just kind of loosey-goosey and there's all these gods and goddesses and you just sort of, whatever the circumstance requires and it's the way people are sacrificing or the stories that get told are different from village to village and it's just kind of this organic thing, right? And that, and then here comes this thing that's highly structured and highly well for the for the time and comparatively speaking, pretty probably looks pretty efficient. Um, you know, it's got levels of management. It looks like kind of a modern corporate structure, and yeah. and and they've got a book and there's a set of rules and there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this, and and that, so that it's just ultimately they cannot withstand the. The, the the structure right and of this um this thing that's just highly i don't know what is the word i'm looking for but but you know what i mean is that, is it, is it, is it that that it makes it so that ultimately christianity can be triumphant it's it's just so much more um yeah just structured and rule rules based that something else that's that's not that way it just can't compete it, it, I'm, I'm sort of tripping over my words here, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, I think you are absolutely right. It's um, Christianity has that attraction in the in the Middle Ages of of, uh, of being highly organized and being uh, very useful for society, and it becomes embedded in society in the, in the Middle Ages in a way that is sort of difficult to understand for us today. At least in in uh, you know in America that has the distinction between between church and state, or in Scandinavia as I am, which is you know, very secular societies and has been for for quite some time. Um, the the I I go back to this idea that uh, these people wanted to become European, and being Christian was part and part and parcel of that. Uh, something else, actually, that's part and parcel of that is that you said they have this book. Uh, there were no books in Scandinavia in the in the Viking age. You almost wonder, did they know what the book was? There was writing, but there was writing on pieces of wood or or uh, stone, and and in some cases, uh, there were, you know, there there might have been ladders on birch bark or whatever. Uh, but they didn't really have books. Uh, another part of Scandinavia, of uh, European culture that one, that one bought into. Then I, I think it's also, we, we, we shouldn't exaggerate the, the, you know, the church is a, is a large and uh, sometimes well-oiled uh, institution in the Middle Ages. Uh, but it doesn't have complete control by by any means, and there is a lot of local variation popping up. And one of the ways one sees this in is is, for instance, the the all the saints. And I'm talking about the the local saints, the the saints that we 
I mean, there's so many saints in Scandinavia that you really, we we historians know about it because they're mentioned like in one document or in two documents or, or something like that. Uh, so these were these were really very local, locally colored things that kind of continued this local tradition that you talked about that that you know the cult was different in each valley. But the cult is still different in each valley because we, we have different saints. We we pro- surely have some different uh, traditions in other ways as well. That reminds me of there's a um, I, John Otts. Uh, I, I got into discussion with him and he uh, we found um, or he sent uh, who was it the Archbishop of Nidaros, which was what is Trondheim yes. now, right? And this is yes. like in the 1230s, 1240s, and something like these communications from the Pope. Uh, admonishing him because he hears that up there in the north they're using beer in the Eucharist instead of yes. wine, and then they're yes. also using beer to baptize people well, with instead of holy water. And so even even that saliva, yeah, and that saliva was, for baptism. Oh yes. my god, they're just spitting on the well, children. And stuff. Oh well, it's yeah. I mean, uh, uh, think of. Um, I mean, th- about the beer. How easy do you think it is to get wine in Trondheim in the Middle Ages? <laughs> that has to be transported a long, a long distance. It's you have to go pretty far south to find places where you produce wine, and the Eucharist has to be wine, and it has to be fresh wine. I mean, fresh. You can't have you can't take the stuff that you find at the bottom of the bottle and have the that won't be the Eucharist. And then, and then there is also this all this uh, obsession about what do you baptize in. And uh, it's yes, the Archbishop of Trondheim writes to the Pope and asks, and the Pope answers, it has to be fresh water. Uh, and you cannot use sea water, you cannot use uh, beer, you cannot use uh, saliva, or, or or anything. And I always wonder, like what. Why is this an issue? I mean, there's all Scandinavia is not a desert, really. There's water everywhere. Exactly. Uh, but then, then you realize it's probably about uh, being on a ship at yeah. sea and having run out of fresh water, you know, because you can't baptize in seawater. I I'm just don't, I don't like the mental image I'm getting of being baptized with saliva. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's not. But it's it's um, it's actually it's slightly more complicated than that because it's not the baptism as we think of it. Is it's the it, the idea is that you take some saliva on your fingers and make a cross in the in the forehead and on the there. I think there are five places you're supposed to make it, or maybe it's three. I don't remember. So so this is what would be done with chrism in the church. And the idea of of the saliva replacing the crisp in this just something humid, but but yeah, I mean the the Pope has a lot of problems with the Scandinavians. He's often writing uh, angry letters to to you know, Scandinavian bishops that that uh, like saying, you know, I have heard you know, this and that, and and this this is the rule and. Uh, I, I wrote my doctoral dissertation about Gratian's Decretum, which is a canon law collection from the middle of the 12th century. Uh, in the 1170s, the 
a pope writes to the Archbishop of Uppsala in Sweden saying that, I, I hear that you are not running things properly. Now here are 20 chapters from Gratius Decretum that you must observe from now on. He doesn't say that that's where they're from, but that's clearly where they are from. I think that actually gets to a really good um, uh, part of this whole conversion process in Scandinavia that we haven't really uh, talked about yet. And that is um, how sort of genuine and heartfelt these things would have been or not. I mean, we know, right, this thing of primus ignatio, right, with their prime signing, they're just sort of going through the motions. And even as early as Charlemagne, right, they knew that there were these kind of political baptisms or conversions of opportunity that didn't really have anything to do with religion or, you know, taking Jesus into your heart and things like that. I mean, these were um, these were not genuine, but nobody seemed to care, even on the side of the church, at least at first. They didn't really need you to be a believer. And as a matter of fact, it's sort of like going through the motions and doing the actions was usually the first thing, and then belief kind of follows. So could you talk yeah. a little bit about that part of it? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I mean, again, it's so easy to have the modern view of, of you know, it's what the individual feels and thinks and, and believes that's important. While uh, in the, not just in the Viking Age, I think in the, in the Middle Ages overall, uh, most of the time what was important, what was happening in the community, in groups of people, what you do, not what you think. Uh, and uh, that uh, that means that when we are thinking of conversion, it's not about persuading people. Uh, it's about making people do the right things in the right context. So making people, you know, go to church and confess their sins uh, yearly, and 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 so forth. Rather than sacrificing in public, if you if what you do at at home in in your in in your own house doesn't really matter much, my we don't worry about that, um, because it's 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 not about beliefs; it's about what you what you do and what you are seen to be doing. This actually ties in with something that I've been looking into recently, which is um, Dr. Carl Jung. The psychologist, right. you know, and, yeah. and he taught and I love the story of, I mean, he, how he got into all of this was he went to communion, he drank the blood of Christ, ate the body of Christ, and he felt nothing. Yes. And so he spent right. the rest of his life trying to examine, you know, that the, the, the spiritual side of, of humanity, if you will. Right. And, and uh, he, he talks about that a lot, you know, there's the intellectual side, the spiritual side, and then an imbalance between the two causes pathology, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting is, is in describing this with the conversion is here we have the church saying, hey, you need to put in the structure first, right? Um, and it yeah. ties kind of into what Carl Jung used to talk about. Of he, uh, uh, I read somewhere, uh, which which one was it? Um, anyway, I'll, I can dig into it. But it's, it's uh, basically a spiritual awakening of the educational variety. Yeah. Something I've heard said, which is basically, you're not going to experience the spiritual the spiritual awakening or the the fundamental spiritual change that that comes as part of this process until you start taking the actions 
And for some people, it'll happen right away. For some people, it'll take longer, right? But as long as you keep taking these actions and you follow the structure, it's all designed to steer you into that direction. So I, I just think about that and I think, you know, oh, when so that somewhere the 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 people in charge of the church had, had knew this. They said if we could just get them to follow this process, eventually they'll all buy in because they'll all experience this this spiritual awakening that we are we're all after you know as part of this this i don't want to call it an experiment but the church was pretty young back then so we'll call it an experiment uh but but like i was very intentional on like you know here's because you get some people who have the burning bush experience and they have that in the bible and they're like oh it's great right. it's so fast but then you have yeah. the people who you know it really takes them until the end of their lives but as long as they follow you know, until they follow the, or uh, as long as they follow that process, then eventually they'll get that, ah, you know, and, 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 and that's something that um, uh, uh, Jung wrote about, because he was one of those people who, you know, really struggled with that. And so he, he considered himself one of the people with the, uh, the educational variety, although he lamented in the 50s with a couple of essays of his that he never really made it. I apologize. It's it's like the last three or in fact, my entire lower shelf is all union psychology stuff. And so I've like right. I've been diving into it for like the last three to five years. And so everything I just said is is I'm paraphrasing based on things I've encountered, but my exact memory of where I saw it and read mm -hmm. it, it kind of eludes me right now. I have a three-month-old who doesn't sleep through the night yet. So we're Oh, my, I'm sorry. My, my, my brain is not is at like 60 percent capacity so the fact that i'm even able to communicate this on any sort of right. intelligible That's level is surprising to me yeah yeah, yeah but you're right yeah. on track cj i mean because we know too with the scandinavians even well before that going into the earliest parts of christianity right that um you know part of the part of the process is just sort of overlaying sort of Christmas or Christmas, Christmas, well, Christmas is one part of it, but Christian dress upon previous rituals and practices and beliefs so yes. that there's a way to kind of ease it in so that the change doesn't appear so abrupt. So the acceptance can come more easily, right? Well, it's like the argument is sort of like, well, you see, it's not so different than what you are already doing. So you just sort of swap yeah. out this, this word for that word or whatever. And actually, I mean, as we were just saying this, I was looking at um, so Bede's history of the English church, right? And in there, there's, yeah. a, there's a really great passage where it's, you know, supposedly write this copy of a letter that Pope Gregory sent. And this is like in the year 601. So this predates the Viking age. Yes. Uh, but but to an abbot who was headed off somewhere to to do missionary work and you know like this extensive paragraph here of it just just that here are the instructions don't force them to get rid of the old things that they're doing just sort of kind of massage it a little bit and you know convince yeah. them that the new thing is not exactly that different um and so that's that's a lot of how the process went even going back into the earliest times right yeah yeah no, I mean, that, that's certainly right. And I think it's also this process, I mean, the, the entire conversion of, of Europe outside the, the Roman Empire uh, that really reshaped Christianity a lot as well. Well, we're coming up on an hour and a half here, and I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have something you. needed to do. Um, I did have a question. Maybe we'll save this if you could convince your 
your dear wife to come on our podcast because I actually would like <laughs> to talk about how Christianity affected women uh, in in skin right. yeah, in, in the longer term. But uh, that that'll be a conversation for another time, I suppose. But thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this has been thank you for having me. Very interesting. Yeah, I have a, I have one last question. I'm just curious because you you mentioned it earlier. So, what's next for Andrews Winroth? You mentioned you're working on uh, something to do with the Rus. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I one of my problems is that I often work. I usually work on several projects at the same time. Uh, but the more Viking related one is that there is a huge international project to write the history of Ukraine. Uh, and I have taken on the the uh, the Rus part and the Viking part of it. So, so yeah. So this is uh, this was re relatively recently launched. There's ninety people involved, wow. and it's it's quite exciting. And and uh, so I I am I have actually been reading the the. Russian Primary Chronicle again, rereading it in the in the last in the last uh, few weeks, mm. and it's very it's a very exciting story. And and uh, even though I I read up on this uh, some time ago, but it's more than ten years ago. Uh, there's so much exciting that has been found archaeologically since then. That that. Uh, I, I, I'm really excited about. And then I'm writing a, a, a brief introduction to medieval canon law, soon to be found in an airport close to you. <laughs> in an airport? <laughs> <laughs> airport? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I didn't, I, I don't have any legal training. I didn't start graduate school wanting to do law. Uh, but I, I sort of slipped into that that um, uh, aspect of, of medieval history, thanks to a, a very good teacher of, of, of mine. Uh, and uh, I have discovered since that a lot of medieval historians are sort of scared of law. Uh, I don't know, it might just be my imagination, but, but several people have said that to me. So I thought I would try to write something that's... That, uh, uh, would be inviting people to to uh, medieval canon law. You get the other the, the visual of you know the, the airport book the, or the the beach book the vacation book right? Yes, you're like laying there in your lounge chair, you know, having your relaxing vacation, and people are like, "Oh, what's that? Like some kind of you know <laughs> romance novel or something?" Like, yeah. no, it's yes. medieval yeah. history. <laughs> Law. Medieval canon yeah, law. Yeah. I, I, I'm at the part where the where the Pope is is scolding the Bishop of Trondheim for using yes. saliva in baptism. Yes, yes, very naughty. Uh, that, that, scandalous, yeah. scandalous, that, scandalous indeed. That's awesome. Oh, well, yeah. good luck with that. Thank you, thank you. Yes, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate you being thank here. Thank you. Today. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun to, to, to come on the show.